0: This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2022, live in a classroom at Yale University. The colonial, the post-colonial, the global. All right, everyone. Greetings. Uh, this is this is the last lecture of this class. Um, can anybody sing? You can, can you sing? How does, um, do you know how, um, what's it called? You know how the Carol of the Bells goes? No. Okay. That's it. That's the one. That's the one. That's okay. That's the one. Very good. And you didn't raise your hand when I asked. I know that the, second, the second question usually is not great after the first. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so our, our, so we had like eight tones of kind of Christmas music there to start us out with, which I'm gonna get back to uh, if I manage. What we're talking about today is, is empire in Europe. And like the last lecture, this lecture is meant to bring some threads together to help you think about the essays and help you think about the class as, as a whole. We're, we're obviously talking about this in the context of an imperial war that is going on right now, the the Russian war against Ukraine, which began in 2014 and which was accelerated this February with a full scale invasion. I think this is a fairly straightforward imperial war in its rhetoric and in its goals. I'll talk more about that as we go. Um, What I want to talk about, though, in this lecture is what this imperial war tells us about Europe and the European imperial past, and what, what we can say about the European and American reaction to this war on the basis of the history of empire. So a, a larger theme of this class, as you've all gathered, is what is history good for? What, what is it and what is it good for? One of the things that history is good for is reflection upon the other stories about the past that you are being told so there's an obvious criticism of course in this class of the of of the imperialist narrative that, that ukraine doesn't exist right but but perhaps more subtly there's also a criticism of a european narrative which says that european integration was born out of the higher european wisdom that war is bad and that peace is good so if any of you are from European Union member states, uh, you will be familiar with this because you've been bombarded with it you know, since, since childhood. The notion that the Europeans are different and better than the Americans because they experienced a second world war and they saw that it was bad. And therefore they have now had economic cooperation and since then things have been good. Um, it, 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 there are a couple of problems with this. Um, one of them is that what happened is not that Europeans learned from the Second World War that war is bad, that never happened. They kept fighting wars after the Second World War. They kept fighting, world, they kept fighting wars until they lost them. That's the, a critical part of the story which goes missing. The Dutch and Indonesia, the French and Algeria and Southeast Asia, uh, the Portuguese and the Spanish can't hold out in Africa. It's basically the same story everywhere. They keep fighting until they lose and the wars they lose are imperial wars. The story of European integration as it's told allows that imperial history to be pushed aside, to be occluded, to be not seen at all. And because that history is not seen at all, this leads to misanalyses and misunderstandings of contemporary political situations. The other tricky thing about that story is that it suggests that once you've learned this lesson that war is bad, All you have to do is trade with people and everything will be good. To emphasize, the problem with that is that the European integration story with all the trade, which certainly happens, Treaty of Rome and all of that, um, it all happens after the defeat in the Imperial War. And so trade may very well be a good thing, but in the actual European history, this trade project follows upon defeat in Imperial War. And when you take the defeat in Imperial War out of the story, you're removing something which is going to disable your analysis of of, of the rest of, of the rest of contemporary events. So just very briefly now, I'm going to remind you of some of the high points of the history of European Empire. We've already had, we've had a couple of lectures on this already. It's in the background of the reading in Road to Unfreedom to Black Earth to some some extent. But I just I want to make I want to try to make sense of where we are now. On the basis of this trajectory of, of empire, so um, from the point of view of European empire, seventeen seventy six, the great proud American independent story, that's when the northern hemisphere basically falls out. I mean, there will be six. You know, the Spanish will be around for a while, the Portuguese too. But seventeen seventy six is basically you can call a turning point where the where the western hemisphere, where the Americas fall out, begin to fall out of the calculation. Um, empire is going to mean essentially. Uh, Asia and and Africa. The 19th century is then a competition for the territory that's still left, most famously or notoriously, the race for Africa at the end of the 19th century. At the end of the 19th century, around the beginning of the 20th, we have a First World War, which is a world war, even before the Americans arrive, because of empire. It's a world war because it's fought with colonial soldiers from all over the, the world. It's not a war of... You know, Europeans against Europeans, it's Europeans and their colonial subjects against other Europeans and their colonial subjects, which is fought in Europe. At the end of the First World War, what we have is a curious situation where the land empires all managed to lose. And the sea empires, the maritime empires, managed to win. The British and the French managed to win. The Ottomans, the Germans, the, the, the Russians in a complicated way by way of revolution, um, the Habsburgs, all managed to lose. And as we've seen in this war, Ukraine is a major prize. Ukraine is the territory that the Germans think they can use to win the war on the Western front. They turn out to be wrong, but that is what they think. At the end of this war, we have the, 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 the rise of the doctrine of self-determination, which means in effect that the maritime empires, I'm now counting the US among them, have the idea that the former territory, some of the former territories in the land empires in Europe should become independent states. So national self-determination does not apply to all the world, that's a, that's a truism, right? Um, it was not about American colonies or British colonies or French colonies, far from it. Um, it, was about the, it was about the former terrains of defeated land empires, but not all of them, not, not Ukraine, right? Not Ukraine. Ukraine instead passes through this incredibly complicated period that we have studied of, in which uh, you have white Russians, that is Russian restorationists of empire who are fighting for Ukraine. We have Poles who in some way are fighting for Ukraine. We have the Leninist idea of self-determination, which basically means we say that you can have self-determination, but so long as it doesn't contradict the interests of the center, right, of the, of the revolution. So a kind of declarative self-determination. And while this is all going on, this is why I asked if anybody could sing. While this is all going on, um, musicians from Ukraine, are on tour across Europe and North America, playing, for example, in Carnegie Hall. Um, the song which drew the most attention is, um, is, is, is the melody which was which was just sung, um, which was composed by a Ukrainian composer called Mykola Leontovich, um, which really caught the attention of, of the Americans, so much so that it was adapted with new English words um, to become what's now the Carol of the Bells which is the most striking, um, I think, American Christmas Carol, and I'm gonna return at the end to why that is. Leontovich himself is murdered in 1921 by the Bolshevik secret, secret police. Okay, in, so then what is the Second World War? Again, from the, from the perspective of Ukraine, or from our perspective, um, the Second World War is another imperial war. But this time, the German aspiration for Ukraine is is the absolute center. It's at the absolute center of Hitler's plans. It's at the absolute center of the war itself. And the theory theory behind this war, and you've read all this in Black Earth, but the theory behind this war is that the, the stronger nation should be colonizing and starving the weaker nation. That's what always happens, or the stronger people, the stronger race. Should be, should be dominating, colonizing, starving out the weaker. Why does this not always happen? According to Hitler, it doesn't always happen because of the Jews. That is Hitler's version of anti-Semitism. The Jews have ideas like Christianity, capitalism, communism, rule of law, contracts, you name it. And these ideas get into people's minds and prevent them from becoming the ruthless racial warriors that nature meant them to be. Um, and what, what, so, they, so, so in Hitler's view, the Jews are both softening the minds of Germans and, this is important, they're ruling Ukrainians because the Soviet Union, according to Hitler, is a Jewish state. So the Ukrainians, in his analysis, are colonial people. They're being ruled by one colonist, the Jews, and if you kill the Jews or get them out of the way somehow, the Ukrainians will be happy to be ruled by another colonial master, right? That's, that's the theory. In, this, in the planning for the war, the Germans intend to starve tens of millions of Soviet citizens. Tens of millions of Soviet citizens in order to colonize the Western Soviet Union and especially Ukraine. Um, tens of millions of, of, Soviet, of Soviet citizens. Uh, in, 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 in and One of the, the reasons why they think this is possible is because at the time everyone knew that there was this thing which only recently people have started to call Holodomor which is the famine in 1932, 1933. The the, the German analysis is that the collective farms in the Soviet Union can be used to divert food in any direction, right? So if they can be used to divert food to feed the Russians, they can also be used to divert food to feed the Ukrainians. We can use them as instruments of starvation. In fact, they're never able to starve tens of millions of people. Most of the starvation takes place in prisoner of war camps where about 3 million um, Soviet prisoners of war are, are starved. Ukraine, as you know from the reading, is also a major site. Oh, and by the way, Ukrainian soldiers who are starving in the German prisoner of war camps in 1941 refer to their experience of hunger in the Soviet Union in 1933. There are even songs which refer to both of these events. Uh, Ukraine, as you know from the reading, is also a major site of the Holocaust. Two of the, the major shooting sites, Kamyanez podilsky and Babi Yar, just outside Kiev, are, of course, in, in Ukraine. And the war is largely fought in and for Ukraine. Right. And so it's very important for present politics and for present conversations about imperialism that we know that this war was an imperial war. This is not just some point that I'm trying to make on, on the margin. It's very important to keep in mind that there was an imperial motive, an imperial geography to this, to this war, and that there were peoples who were subject to an imperial policy. Okay, so at the end of the Second World War, once again, the maritime empires managed to win. The British and the French managed to win, again with the help of the Americans. Um, Germany, which is aspiring to be a much larger land empire, loses and loses very decisively. And in losing decisively their imperial war for Ukraine, the Germans begin the trend of other European empires losing imperial wars, right? So they be this his that thing which I've just said is the thing which is silenced, right? It's silence that Germany's war was an imperial war and it's silence that Europeans then began to lose a series of imperial wars. And how is that silence achieved? It's achieved by the otherwise very attractive story of European integration the story about how Europeans are very wise and they understand that war is bad because they're smarter than the Americans who keep fighting wars, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so in this, um, and so in this, in this story, it's, it's the empire that goes missing and it's, it's most crucially the story of the German empire which goes missing. So Ukraine goes missing just as Indonesia and Algeria and Morocco and Mozambique and all the rest go missing from this story. But as I say, this is most important for the Germans right? This lecture is about empire and you think I'm only going to be talking about Russia, but I'm going to be spending a lot of time talking about Germany. Russian imperialism is right now very open. It's not, it's, it's not very complicated. We'll talk more about it, but crucial to where we are in the 21st century is the misanalysis, the misapprehension, and forgetfulness about German colonialism and, and, German, and German empire. And as I say, one of the things history is good for, maybe the major thing, is to create reflection about the things that one got wrong or the things that one missed. So in, in Germany from 1945 to 1940, in 1989, the main story is the division of the country. Germany loses its eastern territories. What remains of Germany is divided, from, is divided into a West Germany and to an East, an East Germany, one democratic, one one communist. From the point of view of West Germany, the major story is of one's own victimhood, one's own victimhood. We were bombed at the end of the war. Um, uh, so many of our men died. The, we lost all of this territory. Our country was divided, right? So the major story in, in the 50s, 60s into the 70s is one's own victimhood, right? So this business of Germany taking responsibility for the Second World War is a relatively recent development and quite partial. Um, The discussion of German responsibility for the war begins as a discussion of the Holocaust, which is very important. Um, It it, it allows other discussions and it's tremendously important in and of itself. The problem with the discussion of the Holocaust, which takes place in Germany in the 70s and 80s is that it's missing a lot of important things. It's missing any discussion of East European territories. It's, It's missing any discussion of territory at all. And it's missing, perhaps most critically, the German imperialism, which got Germany out into Eastern Europe in the first place, which is a crucial part of the history of the Holocaust because that is where the Jews lived, right? So without the German imperial ambition to get to Ukraine, there couldn't have been a Holocaust because those territories are where the Jews or most of the Jews actually lived. So in this discussion of of the Holocaust, one of the things which which is missing is the German imperial ambition. So you get self-criticism about the Holocaust, but it's limited, it's, it, but it, it doesn't have territory. And the Jews who are most important in this discussion are the German Jews. Of course, that is a very important history, but German Jews are only about 3% of the victims of the Holocaust, only about 3%. And so that story can't be a representative one, and it can't be one which is going to get Germans to think about the broader geographical scope of the war, and then indeed it tends to be one, so whereas the history of the Holocaust tends to move you to a place where you can talk about other crimes. So for example, Jews in Eastern Europe are some of our witnesses to the starvation of Soviet prisoners of war. Right. In Jewish testimonial material, there is there is evidence of the starvation of Soviet prisoners of war. If you focus on Germany, all you have are the Germans and the Jews, which is a very different sort of story. And you don't have you're not being forced to think about the other crimes, let alone the other people's further, further east. In the 1970s, um, the in the 1970s, West German social democratic governments begin a process of reconciliation with the Soviet Union. And this is a Soviet Union, which you know from the reading from the class, this is the Soviet Union of Brezhnev. And so what we have underneath this reconciliation is the meeting of two stories about what actually happened in the Second World War. And by this time, by the 1970s, there's a Soviet story. And the Soviet story is um, a cult of the war in which we were the victims as well as the victors the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact and Soviet alliance with Nazi Germany completely taboo. The documents are, are the documents are hidden away. No one's, no one's remembering that, uh, and, and and it's a and it's a, it's a it's a Russified cult of the war, right? It's a Russified cult of the war. Um, m- this meets a German story in which Germans are increasingly willing to take responsibility for the Second World War. Uh, And the way that Germans move in this direction is to direct the apologetic energy towards the Moscow center, right? And so in Germany, as in the Soviet Union, the idea that the Second World War was about tens of millions of dead Russians becomes normal. Now the Second World War did involve millions of dead Russians but the, the, the scale of suffering was actually greater in Ukraine and in Belarus than it was in Russia. And the story. so the story in which Russia monopolizes both the victory and the victimhood also starts to become natural in Germany. And so then in this weird way, what is actually meeting is a Russian quiet imperialism, the administrative Russification of the 1970s, with a German or with the remnants of a German imperialism or kind of German implicit imperialism, or at the very least, the total absence of a reckoning with German imperialism, which means that it's totally natural that in this situation, no one talks about Ukraine at all. No one talks about Ukraine at all. The Germans have no reason to talk about Ukraine because there's there's been no historical reckoning and so Russia's silences about Ukraine or control about Ukraine seems completely natural. All right, so after, after, 19, after 1989 we reach a moment where um, we have, as you've seen already in this class, after 1989 we're in a moment of tremendous change, of, of rapid geopolitical realignment, um, where uh, from the German point of view, and that we're now under Christian democratic governments headed by Helmut Kohl. From the German point of view, what we have is historical justice. We have a unification. East Germany and West Germany are brought together. The most interesting anti-imperial move that's made at this time has been, was made, as we've seen again in the lectures and the reading, was made by the Poles actually. Um, when the Poles recognize the Ukrainian border before Ukraine is even independent, they're making an, an anti-imperial move vis-a-vis themselves which makes it much easier for the Germans to make the same move vis-a-vis Poland. Because all the way up until 1990, Germany had not recognized its border with Poland. The fact that the Poles put any national quarrels with Ukrainians out of the question made it somewhat more likely that the same outcome would prevail on the German-Polish border. And the the lack of national conflict or border conflict is one of the reasons why the European Union can enlarge as it will to embrace many of the former communist states in 2004, 2007, 2013. During this time, Germany is uh, the most important democracy in Europe, unified Germany. It's the biggest economy. It's a very functional democracy. It may already be the most important democracy in the world, but you can't tell the Germans that. Um, uh, And as we enter the 21st century, the Germans have a reputation for having dealt with the past, which is only partially justified. One has to be very careful here, because the Germans are, of course, pioneers in identifying a particular historical evil, which is the Holocaust, and beginning a story of addressing it. And that has been good for their democracy. And I suggest in general that those kinds of things are good for democracy. The, the problem with this reflection is that it was thought to have been completed, Right? The idea was that by the time we got to the end of the Cold War, we the Germans have already gone through this process and now we're in a position to be a model for other people. Whereas in fact, the end of the Cold War created, I would have said, an opportunity to think about Eastern Europe more broadly and about the German war and the East more broadly, which is the thing that doesn't happen. So the, the criticism, um, the, the, so the, the form the criticism very often takes, is that other people in Eastern Europe, in Poland, for example, or in Ukraine, um, don't understand how important peace is. So peace becomes, peace is the, is the crucial category. What the Germans will say again and again, and here I say the Germans with some confidence, because this is a consensus which goes, which spans most of the political spectrum, is that peace is the important thing. But peace is not what happened to Germany. Defeat is what happened to Germany. Right? But you won't find Germans arguing that imperial powers have to be defeated. What you find them arguing is that peace is a good thing. Um, and, uh, and so there's no reflection on empire. right? There's no, there's no imperial analysis in this, in this framework. Um, there is room for criticism of decline of democracy in a minor key. But here, the Germans, and again, this is a broad consensus, generally miss the most important and obvious case, of the decline of democracy, which is Russia in 1999 to 2000, or maybe Russia 1993 to 2000. But in any event, the rise of Putin in 1999 to 2000 is a hugely important turning point, because it's here that Russia fails to have competitive elections, where one Russian president, Yeltsin, um, anoints the next one, Putin. Putin stages a war. And so you avoid that thing which is so crucial for the success of a democratic system in which somebody coming from somewhere else unexpectedly is a candidate and wins, right? And wins. Here you have instead the person at the center of the system picking the next person who's the center of the system. At that, this is the moment where Russian democracy fails. Um, likewise, there is very little recognition in Germany, I think it's fair to say, of the significance of the reverse happening in 2004, 2005 in Ukraine. In 2004, there was similarly attempt in Ukraine for a president to anoint his successor. And then elections were faked to see that that successor would win. And this was held off by civil society protest. And in this way, Ukrainians were able to arrange for an actual democratic succession where the person that the the incumbent wanted to come into power to succeed him did not actually come to power and someone else did. now the, during, so, so, so 2004, so at this time, I'm just, there's a, something I have to get on the record now. It's at this time when Gerhard Schröder, who's the, who's the social democratic now um, Prime Minister of Germany, it's at this time, November 2004, that Schröder says, Putin is a flawless Democrat. And that kind of rhetoric from Schröder is going to continue essentially um, basic, almost to, the, almost to the present, almost to the present day. In the 21st century under Schroeder, um, uh, and, and then under, the, under his successor, Angela Merkel, the key that the Germans tend to apply in their foreign policy towards, towards Russia is, um, is economics. And I want to stress this point again, although I'm sure it's clear, this arises from a certain misanalysis of how the European Union and how European integration arose. The, the theory of European integration was war's bad, Trade is good, okay? I mean, one doesn't wanna dispute those two premises, but the missing part in the story is, we, the Germans, decisively lost a war and admit that we lost it, right? We gave up on imperial solutions and we, because we had to, because we were defeated, and then we moved on to something else. And that that was true of most of the other Europeans as, as, as well. And so the economics becomes a kind of magic where the notion is then, okay, if we, if we cooperate economically with Russia for example, if we buy Russian natural gas, that will have a, must have a positive effect on Russia because that's the theory, right? So Gerhard Schreder, who's the leading figure in all of this, um, negotiates uh, a, a gas pipeline with the Russians. A few weeks after he leaves office in 2005, um, in what not only the Germans might find to be unseemly haste, he then joins the board of the gas company in question and is employed in one way or another by the Russian hydrocarbon industry uh, with accumulating titles and salaries um, for, the next, for the next many years. So um, this policy though, in, in fairness, one has to say is a consensus policy which is, then con- which is then continued by the Christian Democrats. And when I say the Germans over and over again, I'm ma- basically meaning the two, you know, the two Volkspartei and the two, the two, big, the two big parties, okay. Now, the irony of all of this, especially given that Shota is from the Social Democrats, which is historically is an anti-fascist party, the irony of all of this is is that this is a time when an astute observer, at least, might have noticed that certain important parts of the Russian elite, including the president of the Russian Federation, are beginning to talk in openly fascist terms. And the the president of the Russian Federation is quoting Russian fascists in his most important political addresses. Um, There is is no notice of this in Germany. No notice at all. Um, And uh, and I I think the logic of insulating Germany from all of this is something like, we are the anti-fascists, and therefore if we're negotiating with them, they can't be fascists. And this, I, this logic prevails deep into the 2020s and probably until the beginning of the war. Um, so the, the Maidan of 2013, 2014 can be seen in this light as well. Actually, so the Maidan of 2013, 2014, which you've read about, which you've heard about in a separate lecture, confirms this post-imperial analysis of the EU, because that's how everybody sees it, everybody who matters anyway. Uh, The Ukrainians want to join the European Union because they understand that the European Union is there to rescue slightly problematic post-imperial states such as their own. The Russians want to stop Ukraine from joining the European Union because they recognize the same thing. They understand that should Ukraine join the European Union, it is much more likely that Ukraine will become a successful rule of law state and prosper and become a model for Russians, which from the point of view of the Putin regime would be a very bad thing. Everyone outside the European Union sees the logic that I'm trying to share. It's only inside the European Union that it becomes unclear. When Russia invades Ukraine in 2014, we see the implicit Russian, the, the implicit imperialism of Russian-German cooperation, become explicit in the language which the Russians use and which the Germans then pick up. The, 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 the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2014 is muddled and made unclear, and a great success for, for Russian foreign policy. And the muddling and the unclarity is a result of certain kinds of tropes about Ukrainians, which are imperial tropes that Ukraine was never really a real state. The Ukrainians aren't really a people, and if they are people, they are corrupt, and their state is going to fail because they're corrupt. And by the way, they're all Nazis. So, oh, and they're gay. That fit in there too. But, but the but and they were, you know, right. <laughs> no, you know how this works. It's social media targeted audiences. Like that's how it works. Like if you if you don't like gay people, they tell you the Ukrainians are all gay. Um, if you if you don't like Nazis? They tell you they're all Nazis. If you do like Nazis, they tell you that they're all Jews. That also happened, right? Social media, it's your life. You understand this. So, um, so, so, but so the, the the this imperial rhetoric, and here's the point, is largely accepted. In, at least in 2013, 2014, in the German media, at least as the central points of discussion, are they all Nazis? Which is just a way of asking, are they all barbarians? Right? Are they all Nazis? Are, are, they, are they? Is it a failed state? Did the Ukrainians somehow bring this upon upon themselves? All of this language, um, which uh, w- which 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 speaks to the the German imperial tradition about Ukraine, and of course, the 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 Russian the. The 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 Russians are consciously manipulating this. Um, They're consciously playing on what they understand to be German sensibilities. Now I said this was a consensus, and it is. When after Germany, after Russia invades Ukraine, the Christian Democratic government under Angela Merkel then brings into existence Nord Stream Two, which is interpreted at the time by a broad. A swath of Europeans, not just Ukrainians and Poles, but many of Germany's West European allies, as nothing more than a reward for Russia invading Ukraine. Because what Nord Stream 2 does is it allows the Russians to very, to very easily, um, to very easily, uh, bring their gas uh, to to Europe without having it to pass through Ukrainian territory. Okay, so there is a consensus of implicit imperialism here which has to do with, on the Russian side, an, ag- an, an aggressive retelling of history, which I'm gonna say more about now. But on the German side, a lack of historical reflection combined with a certainty that the historical reflection has already taken place, um, which is not only a German problem. You can find that elsewhere, too. Okay, so the, 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 so when we get to the War of 2022, this, isn't, this, is, an imper- this is an imperial war, I think, fairly obviously, right? It's an imperial war and that it's based on a story of history in which some people exist and some people don't. Putin's account of the history of Russia and Ukraine, which he gives in July of 2021, tells you that what happens today is predetermined by things that happened 1,000 years ago. Um, that things that happened 1,000 years ago give him the right to say who's actually a people and who's actually not a people. It's imperial in the classic sense of denying that the people you encounter are a people. Instead, they're a tribe or a clan or they're corrupt or whatever. Um, And it's imperial in the classic sense of denying that the state you encounter is a state. They're not subject to law. Law doesn't really apply. What is law anyway? The more interesting thing which is happening, continuing the Russo-German theme here, is that the the Russian invasion of Ukraine very, very closely follows the model of the German invasion of the Soviet Union which the the Russians themselves tip off at the very beginning, right? They tip this off at the very beginning by saying that this is all a war about denazification. And all you have to do is remove the D, right? Just takes a little bit of Freudian analysis here, just a tiny, tiny bit of Freud to get what they're really after, right? What they're really after is they're fighting a war on the German model. Right? on the German model. And with the denazification, they're doing their typical thing of you know, rolling something in front of the Western media, especially the German media and saying, hey, why don't you talk about this? Right? Let's change the subject to how many Nazis there might be in Ukraine, as opposed to we're invading the country right now. But the denazification thing, I think is actually deeply a clue to what's happening because the similarities are actually really striking. Right? Um, the, the, the notion that Ukraine only exists because of conspiracies um, the, idea that, uh, the idea that Russia is not the aggressor, but it is the victim of conspiracies and therefore it must attack Ukraine. The ideological assumption that the state you're attacking doesn't really exist. It's just propped up by said conspiracies. So the moment you hit it, it will fall apart, which is literally what Hitler said about the Soviet Union. Putin says the same thing about Ukraine. There is also, it's obviously not nearly as important, but there is obviously, there's also an anti-Semitic element in which the the thing which is artificial is the presidency of Volodymyr Zelensky himself, because he's Jewish, right? Um, And that element has grown larger with time, as the Russian media now presents Zelensky routinely as the devil or as the, the antichrist. Also, the idea which is practically plagiarized, that the Ukrainians are a colonial people. They have one master now, but they would be happier with a different master, right? Now they have the Americans, the Jews, the gay international conspiracy—whatever—they have some master, but we would be a better master. But the Ukrainians are colonial people, and they'll be happy when we when we replace the previous master. All of these ideas are not just uncomfortably close; like mean, they're practically copies of the German motivations or the Germans' uh, stated ideologies in the invasion in nineteen in nineteen forty-one. Um, there's even the, the there's even the haunting fact that. The, the Russians were planning one kind of genocide, which was the extermination of the Ukrainian elite, and they have since moved on to other forms of genocide when that one didn't work out, which again on a minor, in a minor key is very similar to what happened to the Germans who were planning a mass starvation campaign, which they were not able to carry out, um, but then moved on to other forms of genocide when, they were act- when the war actually continued. So the actual policies of Russia and Ukraine include things like the deportation of a 10th of the Ukrainian population, including children, um, the execution of elites, um, rape as politics, the bombing of evacuation routes, and so on, and currently the deprivation of water and and, and energy. And this, this moment we're in now, as we move into the winter of 2022, is, if you're a German at least, should be uncomfortably close to the winter of 1941, where... the the idea is you're killing people by depriving them of access to things. The Soviet prisoners of war died in the millions, not because they were shot, although many of them were shot, especially the Jewish ones, but they died in the preponderance because they were denied access to other things, Uh, which is of course what Russia is now trying to carry out on the scale of Ukraine itself. Um, This is not a reference which Germans themselves make, and I would say that's because the Germans generally don't think of the Second World War in terms of the things which happened in the East. So, of course, the, the war in 2022, to be fair, does change people's views. The, the general consensus, um, which is not just a German idea, it's also an American idea, that Ukraine is a weak state, is challenged by the events of February, March, April, and the rest of 2022. The idea that Ukraine was going to fall apart within three days was not just, and this is important, it wasn't just a Russian idea, that was also basically believed in Washington and in Berlin. And I would suggest that the reasons why we all believe that have to do with our own imperial past. It's not just Russian propaganda, it's our vulnerability to certain kinds of arguments about how other people are corrupt and they haven't ever really had a state and maybe they're all radicals and, you know, and, who, and, 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 can, and can their president, you know, can they really have elected a president? Things have changed, things are changing the German parliament just voted a few days ago to recognize the Holodomor as a genocide, which is interesting in and of itself, but it's a short step from there, I would like to think, for Germans to think about how their own hunger plan in 1941, 1942 was related to the Holodomor, not just in the experience of people, but also in its, in its planning, right? The Ukrainians who, who survived both certainly linked both. So it's an interesting moment to see what's going to happen in the winter of 2022. Okay. But when we speak about empire, um, the, the, it's, it's important to, 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 to recall that empire is about the denial of the subjectivity of others. Right? It's about, it's about monopolizing agency. We exist and they don't really exist. And so the story of Russian imperialism in Ukraine is also the story, or more importantly, the story of the Ukrainian reaction right? So Ukrainian subjectivity in all this matters and not just as an answer or as an answer to or negation of, it, ma- it, matters, it matters on its own. And here we can also see a way that history can help us. The, the, the historical references that Ukrainians make on the battlefield at this point in the class should be clear to all of you. When they refer not just to Cossacks, but to Vikings, that will no longer seem like a curiosity. That will seem like something which is not very surprising. When they claim the Second World War as their own war against the Russians, this is also probably now understandable. But the most interesting things in the history, frankly, may have to do with the history of the last 30 years. A lot of what the Ukrainians are doing in their communications has to do with a particular understanding of both Russia and the West and the United States, which I think is specific to a certain generation or two of Ukrainians. And the generational part itself is very important, right? The, 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 the elites who govern Russia are the same elites as 20 years ago, which in Ukraine is not the case, right? The people who run running Ukraine now tend to be younger than me. Which, and I'm not as old as you think. I mean, so they, they, they tend to be, they tend to be, they're closer to my age than your age, let's put it that way, but they're young still. <laughs> they're still young they're still young, like they're still learning, they're still growing, okay. They tend to know the people who are running Ukraine now are in their late 30s and early 40s, just to be clear. And so there's been a generational, there's been a generational turnover, which is itself very important, right? And this, and, and this is also the generation which experienced Maidan participating in it or saw the consequences of it. And that has a lot to do with the sheer subjectivity of the Ukrainian battlefield response, which is based um, not just on a state, which turns out to be far more functional than people thought, but largely on the basis of what we call civil society, of people in horizontal organizations filling in the gaps and doing the things that the state can't do or in a way that the state can't do them. It's also reflected in the pluralism of the army itself and the army's ability to take local decisions, but also the various kinds of formations which appear in the Ukrainian Armed forces, right? Which include, by the way, as probably everybody knows, but it's roughly one in six female um, and includes, includes gay soldiers who actually mark themselves very often as such. Um, prominent cases, of, 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 of prominent cases, but not the only kinds of cases, of of the variety which is possible in a pluralist army. But the war itself, um, the war itself is largely about this subjectivity. Right. The word that Ukrainians use, as I have found, others might correct me, most often to say what it's about is freedom. Right? Freedom in the positive sense, not just of being free of Russians, but freedom in the sense of what is going to come next. So, uh, and the resistance, and this is a point that I meant to get to last time and didn't get to, the resistance is also carried out by the people who would ordinarily be creating the culture. Right? So I mean, since, it was two lectures ago um, that a, a historian, right, a colleague of mine, a guy called Vadim Stetsyuk, uh, was killed in combat. And this, the, he was, this death in combat was reported in turn by a, a, a journalist, a very courageous, intelligent journalist called Vaktam Kipiani, who's a, Georgian, uh, he's a Ukrainian of Georgian origin. That name, which I very much hope I have on the sheet, that name, um, Kipiani, he wrote the book about Vasil about Stus, who was the poet I cited at length last time, the most important of the Ukrainian Soviet-era dissident poets. And in that book, just follow me here, in that book, he devotes a chapter to a a man called Viktor Medvedchuk, because this guy Medvedchuk was Stuss's lawyer in 1980, when Stuss was on trial. And at that time, your lawyer was not somebody who represented you. He was someone who stood up and said, yeah, he's guilty, he actually did it and he probably should go to a camp. And Stuss then did go to a camp and went on hunger strike and, uh, and died, died five years later. This fellow Medvedchuk, you're gonna see why I'm mentioning this. This fellow Medvedchuk is, is Putin's personal friend and he's one of the candidates, he was one of the candidates in February to be the person that the Russians were gonna drop in to run Ukraine. Right? So there are continuities in this, not just a personal literal example, that go back to the 70s. And one way to think about the moment we're in now, not just in Russia and Ukraine, but kind of for <laughs> the whole world, is whether we can ever actually get out of the 1970s. Right? Whether we get out of the 1970s into, into, something, into something else. Because the, the 1970s, and this is a bit of a pivot, but just work with me here. The 1970s are also the origin of all of the literary theory which is behind Russian propaganda, right? Um, and, and, and one way to understand this conflict in Ukraine is one version of the 70s as against another version of the 70s, where the other version of the 70s is the dissidents, the, the human rights idea, right? The notion that you're bearing responsibility and so when you, when you look at, so there are many ways to criticize the Russian media about Ukraine. You can talk about how it's genocidal and saying genocide and all of that's true. Um, whole long list of critiques, but maybe the most interesting thing about it is the total, the total shunning of responsibility. The idea that the war itself is just a performance, that we ourselves are not involved, right? We're, we're not really involved Personally, it's a performance, right? It's a spectacle in which Ukrainians should die because that, like, it's like when our soccer team scores a goal or something, you know, they should die because that's the way that the world works, that's the way we are entertained. And, and in this, of course, the people who are, are, are urging all of this, I mean, to make the obvious point, but it's important, they're not themselves ever going to go to the front, right? They're not themselves ever going to go to the front. It's a, it's a spectacle. Whereas the human rights, it's a spectacle, right? So, you know, separate signifier is separated from signified, right? What is actually true, you know, everything that really matters is the medium itself, that version of the 1970s, versus the other version of the 1970s, which is the dissident version, which says, you're always bearing some responsibility all the time, even when the situation is unfair, right? Even when you're in a show trial, or even when you're at, at war, you take some responsibility anyway, even when the conditions are, Against you, And this is, by the way, the, one of the things that when I did talk to Zelensky back in September, we spent, a cer- we spent a lot of time talking about. So on the other side, of course, it's the case, and I put some of the names on the list because I can't mention all of them and even that list would be very incomplete. But um, uh, on the other side, Ukrainian cultural figure after Ukrainian cultural figure is killed in this war. Some in bombing and shelling, but many of them in combat. Many of many of them in combat, from famous movie actors to to to, to multiple ballet dancers, to to athletes, and of course journalists, um, humanists, scientists. Uh, most re- recently, the the conductor of the Kherson um, the Kherson orchestra was executed for refusing to to conduct a concert for for the Russians, which of course recalls Leontovich, um, the Ukrainian composer I mentioned earlier, who was who was executed. Um, because he represented Ukrainian music. So I could I could, um, I could, mention a Russian cultural figure who was killed in Ukraine. Like there, there certainly are, th- there is one person I can think of and no doubt there are more, but the one, uh, the one who I can think of and people will no doubt help me in the sea of emails I'll get about this, but the one, the one who I can think of is Oksana Baulina. Um, and she was killed by, she was a Russian reporter who was killed by Russian shelling in the Podil district of Kiev. And the way she was killed by what, is by what's called a double tap. A double tap is when you fire an artillery shell and then you wait for the rescue workers to come and then you fire on them. That's a double tap. It's a way that you, journalists often die. that's how she died. And so she died in Podil. She was a Russian, she did die in this war. She is a known cultural figure, she died. Of course, someone who opposed the war, right? There are no Russian cultural figures who are in favor of the war, who are fighting this war in Ukraine. None. Right? There are no such people. Uh, so, and she dies in Podil. And what is Podil? Right? What is Kiev? What is Podil? Podil was a, it was a port area of the city. I'm asking you to go way back now to the 8th century, 9th century, beginning of the class. It was the port area of the Khazars before the Vikings even showed up. The Vikings controlled in 900, which is a sign that they and not the Hazars are the ones who are in charge of of Kiev. If you walk down to Podil from the center of Kiev, there's a beautiful um, there's a beautiful route downwards. Uh, there's a 14th century Lithuanian castle on the way, which marks the period of Lithuanian control of Kiev and much of Ukraine. In the 19th century, Podil was um, the site of markets, which were dominated by by Jews and and Poles. Uh, was it you know was it made Russian by shelling it? Um, was it made Russian by the death of a Russian journalist? Uh, so Podil was there before any of this, right? Podil was there a long time ago, and it's been a theme of this class that, that, uh, that nations are, nations are nations are real political entities in the 20th century, the 21st century, the 19th century. They're formed by all kinds of contact along the way, but there are some things which are actually authentically Old, um, I ended I ended the class last time by reading Yulia um, Muskovska's poem um, about the about the, the 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 problematic politically incorrect verses. Um, but of course, the thing about that poem is that it's not actually the poem that's problematic. Right? It's it's we who are problematic, right? And that, the poem is perfectly elegant, right? It's it's the we we who are problematic. Um, and uh, it, what, what what this this, is, this thought that this is leading me to is um, is the way the poem answers itself, because it, the, the premise of the poem is that this is all we have to offer, right? These the, these awkward words, but that's not true at all, right? The, the the example of the Ukrainians resisting this war offers much more than that, and it offers much more than that. Even, even in poetry, right? That when, when Yulia, um, when, when she answered me on, I can't even tell you what platform, because I don't know, but maybe it was Instagram, maybe it was Telegram, I don't know. But what she said was, I thank all of the Ukrainians who are continuing to create in times of war, which is an acknowledgement of an important point, right? That, all, that it's not just that the war is going on, the culture is going on the entire, the entire time. Which leads me to where I began and, and where I'm I'm going to end, um, I promise very 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 soon. Um, on on Sunday, I was at a concert in Carnegie Hall, which is not something I do all the time. Um, you kind of have to make me, um, but uh, I have kids, right? So you know, you can imagine it was three hours long, right? But I really I really wanted to be there. It Was very interesting. It was uh, among other things that the, the performers were the Ukrainian children, the Ukrainian children's choir, which is called Schedrik. Um, and Shedrick is named after a song called Shedrick. But Shedrick is an interesting word uh, because Shedrick involves an adjective which can mean both Generous and bountiful, right? So, like, I'm the person is generous, but a situation is bountiful, right? And that that it's generous that gives me a cue which I need to use to thank all of the Ukrainian historians and also the Ukrainian listeners. There have been this class has turned out to have been listened to a lot of people in Ukraine, so I'm I'm very glad that you've done so and that you've indulged my my interpretations. But this the blurriness between generosity and bountiful is interesting because it points us back to a pre-Christian era where in a a pagan world, where like the deities are present in the world, um, there isn't really a line between generous and bountiful. Like the world is gonna be bountiful because the deities are generous, right? And that's why you perform certain rituals um, and that's why you celebrate the season. So that song, the dun, 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 that song, which we have as an American Christmas Carol, is, uh, is of course, at, you know where I'm going with this, it's a Ukrainian song. And the reason why it's so different from all the American Christmas carols is because it arises from Ukrainian polyphonic singing, right? from, from multi-part harmony Ukrainian singing. And the song itself, the song that Mikola Leontovich took almost 20 years to adapt is ancient, it's ancient. And it's not about winter actually, it's actually about spring. Because if you're a pagan, I mean, if you're a sensible person actually living in the world, when does the, when does the year actually begin? It begins when things start growing out of the ground. And it begins when the swallows come and sing. It begins when the first lambs are born, which is February or, or March, which is what the song is actually about. It's about those things. So this song, which was adapted and played in Carnegie Hall a century ago, and then played again on Sunday is ancient. It's pre-Christian. It goes back before 9, 988. Um, uh, it's actually about about spring, right? Um, It's about fertility, it's about prosperity, it's about love, it's about how things are going to get better, right? That part in the the American version where they say at the end, like, um, merry, 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 merry Christmas, that part of the song, they're actually, in the Ukrainian version, it's actually about how your wife is beautiful, right? Like things are going really well for you, you're gonna make lots of money this year, Um, the farm's going really well, and by the way, you know, your wife is beautiful. Uh, and what, what it literally says is that, is that she has, she's she's dark browed, um, which me which is beautiful. Um, that's that's what that's a beautiful woman in Ukraine is a woman who has who has dark eyebrows. So it's a song. It's a song. It's a song about. It's a song about spring. The song which we think of as about winter, which is about spring, um, which I close on because I just want to suggest that sometimes that things that seem like an end can actually be a beginning. These recordings were made and edited by Guy Ortoliva at the Yale Broadcast Studio. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.